Just a heads up, we had some audio issues for this episode, but the quality of the conversation was so good, we couldn't help but release it. The flexibility and autonomy then allows me to learn. I think this is the, the other thing that motivates me on a daily basis because I'm constantly learning about new startups, new tech, new founders, new business models. Without that level of autonomy or flexibility, I don't think I'm able to sustain that level of learning uh, for a long period of time. Uh, and that keeps me going. The hashtag YOLO was trending. So I was like, okay, uh, you know, YOLO, you might never get a chance like this in your career if it passes you. I was like, no, why not? Just take it, take it on, try it. The worst that can happen is you fail and then you look for something else after that. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Brian Lim is head of Rainmaking Expand at Rainmaking APAC a venture development firm recently acquired by consulting firm Bain & Co that builds new startups and helps the world's most promising startups scale in new markets. Through Rainmaking Expand, Brian and his team help growth stage companies seeking to enter new markets internationally scale up by securing successful commercial outcomes and creating new revenue streams. Hi Brian, after working with you for I don't know, is it maybe almost seven, eight months now? I think it's time that I finally get to know you, not the rainmaking side. So I'm really looking forward to this chat. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Amanda. I think we were really, really happy to support Backscoop as well and to work with you. I think it was seven months ago now. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, looking forward to this conversation too. So I think we always try to start with the backstory of somebody because I feel like that somebody's childhood always influences their values, their outlook. So could you tell us a little bit about your early childhood? Were you born in Malaysia? Yeah, so I was born in Johor Bahru, Malaysia, right across the causeway from Singapore. My mom used to say uh, that I would go to Singapore more often than my own backyard in my own home, which was absolutely true, by the way. Um, so I grew up in Johor Bahru, did my primary school studies, my secondary school studies, as well as my college there. And yeah, Grew up in a really traditional Chinese family. My dad is, is uh, you can call him a restaurateur, I guess, but he basically runs a small coffee shop or kopitiam, as we know it in Southeast Asia, that sells halal food. So I think that's a bit different in terms of value proposition. A Chinese family selling halal food and also providing catering services in Johor Bahru, or as we know it, JB. So what does... Uh... Halal Coffee Yeah, so this was actually a business started by my granddad. And we would sell, you know, nasi lemak and all kinds of Malay food. Could be fried chicken, could be curry chicken and so on and so forth. On special days, there are special special dishes like mee rebels and so on and so forth as well. And we were catering a lot to the bank workers who were in the, in the area as well as other kind of like uh, government agencies and even uh, sometimes 
police officers that would be in the area that would drop by because halal food options are always quite similar, I think, in, in, in Malaysia. And it's quite interesting that there is a different take to that kind of food in, uh, based on what, what we were selling as well. And so your dad was doing this coffee diem. Was your mom focused on the household or did she also work or do something herself? Yeah, so my mom was focused on the household. Her job was to pick my sister and I up uh, from and to school, to tuition, as all Asian kids had to go through as well, and generally just managing the household. And what kind of things did you enjoy doing as a kid? Do you remember any of your early hobbies, especially any that stuck? Yeah, I mean, I used to... I, I was sound a lot like a nerd here, but I, I, I used to read a lot, um, like a lot. Uh, and, and of course there, I, I then, you know, started dabbling into sci-fi and a whole bunch of other areas. But yeah, it was, I would say it's mainly reading, uh, when I was a kid. And this is the other part that was going to sound a bit nerdy as well. Working on math problems. Uh, so I used to go to, to this like mental arithmetic school or classes. And then we would have annual competitions and, and that's what I would go for, like a math lead, basically. Um, so yeah, super nerdy. And everything is mental math. You don't write yeah, anything. Yeah, everything is mental. Yeah, everything is mental math. And then basically you have three minutes. You have to complete like 20 or 25 questions. And then you have like nothing to aid, you, like no calculators, nothing to aid you. So you basically just write down the answers to whatever questions were flashing in front of you. And did you enjoy it or was it something that you just felt like, oh, I should do this. I'm already doing this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I certainly enjoyed it more than uh, some of the other things that I was asked to do. So, so for example, my, my parents actually were, were really open-minded. They let me try uh, music classes. Absolutely hated that. Uh, they let me try like language classes as well. So like a Mandarin, for example. So I, I used to enjoy the mental arithmetic as well as the language classes a lot more. Whereas my sister hated those and she went for uh, dance classes and music classes as well. And so I guess in that sense, uh, my parents were very open in sort of letting us try different things and then seeing what we liked and didn't like and then progressing from there as well. And what kind of influence did they have on you growing up? Yeah, I think in terms of a few things. One is they really, when I was growing up, books are not cheap, right? They are what, eight, nine USD um, per book uh, in, in Malaysia at that time. And they would always enable my reading habits. That's firstly, we, I think we, as a family, we are very frugal as well. And that has taught me a lot around like financial literacy and, and, you know, saving money and how to invest money as well. And besides that, I think the other thing would be hard work or graft because my dad would always go to work at 5 a.m. on a daily basis, uh, even sometimes even on weekends because weekends is when we have more catering orders and so on. Um, so I never used to get it when he did that uh, every single day. But as I grew older and I started working there, I, I've, then I understood that uh, a lot better. And then I noticed that you studied abroad when you went to university. What influenced you to go overseas? Was it I don't know, the proximity to Singapore, though you didn't study in Singapore, was it the influence of your parents or the influence of the math lead? Yeah, so this is the third, third nerdy part about me. So um, when I was in high school, I found myself competing in Scrabble competitions. 
and I competed uh, to the level where I was representing Malaysia. And my first international competition was in Australia. So I actually, um, that was my first kind of like long distance international trip as well. So I, I went to Sydney for that, um, which was like the, the first inaugural kind of like youth competition or something like that internationally. So I went to Sydney, fell in love with the city and that I was 15 at that time. So fell mm-hmm. in love with the city. And I'm like, I want to study here one day. I don't know what I'm going to study. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I want to find myself in this city one day because I loved it so much. So through through that Scrabble experience, I was able to experience um, Australia and Sydney. And then after I finished my college, I then basically applied to a university in Sydney itself. uh, And that's how I found myself in Australia from that point onwards. I didn't even know there were Scrabble competitions. I just searched it up. And the first thing that came up, actually, even though I didn't put Malaysia, was Scrabble competition, Malaysia 2023. Maybe it's uh, very big in Malaysia. (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty big in Malaysia. Philippines uh, used to send a pretty big contingent as well. So in in Southeast Asia, um, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, and the Philippines are like the leading uh, countries in Scrabble. Uh, And then, of course, you have Australia, the UK, and the US as well. But yeah, <laughs> it was a very nerdy time uh, back How then. How do you train to be a Scrabble master? Do you learn books, I mean, words from the dictionary and then practice? Yeah, so there are lists that you can print off the internet that you would then memorize. That's firstly. So basically, it's a random assortment of uh, letters, right? So in Scrabble, you have seven letters. So a random assortment of letters, you arrange it alphabetically and then you memorize the words that goes along with those. So there would be lists online that you can download, like two-letter lists, three-letter lists, four-letter lists, all the way going to seven, eight, and nine-letter lists. And I remember, and again, very nerdy of me, I used to learn by writing down this list. So just by reading them, it wasn't sinking in for me. So I would write down and then commit to memory some of these words. And that's how you would learn. And the other way you would train or learn is to constantly compete or, or spar against like you know, your classmates or other people within the, the team as well. And then you would analyze the game after to say, oh, you should have done this here or you could have done that better there. Almost like a retrospective as well. Um, but yeah, that's that's how we used to kind of like train for the competition. How did you even get into like Scrabble competitions? Who introduced it to you? Yeah, so one of my friends was selected because his English was good and then he was looking for others to join him and then we were I was like oh what's that Um, that looks interesting so I just I was just peering over his shoulder while he was playing one day and then he he put down a word and I'm like hey uh, I think it was I don't remember the exact word I was it was something like he right q-u-a-y like like clucky then he put that down and I'm like uh, why didn't you put down the word the word quality, which is on your rack, like Q U A L I T Y, which is the full word, and then you get a fifty point bonus if you put down the full word, right? So, so he looked at me. He's like, I think you should join the team. And I was like, Oh, okay, <laughs> sure. And that's how that's how I fell into it. I literally just found myself into it. And then, so after you went to Australia, did you go straight away for university, or did you spend some time in university in Malaysia first? Uh, so I did my college in university, so my A-levels, and then I did my university education in Australia. So both degree and master uh, were, were in Sydney and then in Melbourne at that time. 
So you did achieve your goal. So how did you get to do that? I don't know if there are Scrabble teams that would like select you and then bring you to a university in Malaysia. I mean, in <laughs> no, Australia. No, that, so, so how yeah, did it happen? Work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite work that way. That was that would be like a almost like a college scholarship model. No, it doesn't quite work that way. So that that's the other thing that I'm very thankful to my parents for because they essentially funded uh, my my education, um, and I was very very fortunate enough that they were able to do that. Um, so yeah, for my degree, they were able to fund it, and then for my masters, by that point in time, I was already working part time for a while as well. So I was able to kind of like partially fund it with them mm-hmm. as well. So how come you fell in love with Australia, but then you went, um, you're now in Japan. Would you rather be in rainmaking Australia if it did exist? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe in the future, uh, if, if that allows. Yeah, so, so maybe a bit of my journey there as well. So when I graduated from my master's uh, degree in Australia, I was fortunate enough to basically get a job immediately because the Malaysian Students Association in, in Australia used to be really, is really, really active and they used mm-hmm. to run uh, annual career fairs. So as part of those career fairs, then there will be, I think, 20 to 25 Malaysian corporates who would come over, present what they were doing, and then essentially some of them would run uh, on-the-spot interviews. So for that, I, I just went along one day um, to, to that career fair. I kind of thought or knew that I wanted a career in tech, but I didn't know mm-hmm. what kind of tech at that point in time. I was considering consulting, I was considering technology, considering a bunch of stuff, but didn't have my mindset essentially. At that career fair, Intel was exhibiting and they were like, um, they looked at my profile and they're like, oh, would you be interested in an on-the-spot interview? And I'm like, sure. I mean, I'm already here. Why not? Right. So I did that on-the-spot interview and I was lucky enough to be able to secure an on-the-spot offer as well um, for a oh, role on the them. spot uh, interview and on the spot yeah. offer on the same yeah. day yeah yeah wow. on the same day yeah so so that was quite cool i think they were one of the few that were really doing that and their office in in malaysia or their their kind of like headquarters in malaysia is actually in penang mm-hmm. which i have been as a as a tourist but i've never like lived or worked there before so when I got that offer and then they said, hey, given your skill set uh, and, and you know, the way you problem solve, uh, we think that you'll be good as part of our R&D team supporting, you know, uh, like financial decisions and strategic decisions and so on and so forth. And that was quite different from the other roles that were available, which were, I think, in the accounting team and the accounts payable team or something like that. So I was like, oh, this is quite a, quite a cool role. I asked my cousin who was living in Penang at that time what he thought. And he's like, yeah, like Intel is well known to be a really, really good employer, a place to kind of like start your career. Definitely really, really good place to do so. Um, and yeah, that's how I found myself then relocating to Penang uh, right after my master's ended. Um, I basically went straight from Melbourne to Penang. I didn't even go back to, to Jobaru and, and stay there for, for like a month or so or anything. No, I basically started work right after I graduated. Was it fun to work in Penang? I think I heard that it's either the beach there that's good or is it the food or both? Yeah. Uh, food's great. Beach is good. And as an island itself, I, I actually really loved it while I was there. So when I was there, Intel gave me a lot of opportunities, I must say. Uh, I even got the chance to travel to the US to do like a sabbatical coverage um, for one of my team members there as well. So I was based in the US for a 
quit also. Um, and I don't think that would have been possible if I just worked for like a fully Malaysian corporate or, you know, a, a more regional kind of company, right? So, so yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed my time at Intel. Really loved the opportunities that they give to, you know, fresh graduates as well. And they are almost like their training or management program is really, really excellent in terms of the support that they were giving to those graduates as well. And, and at Intel, um, I learned a lot about the tech. I learned a lot about the chips that they were making and testing and so on and so forth. And that actually made me realize that like tech is really cool. Like I really like it, but at the end of the day, it's just an enabling layer. Like the chips that you have in your laptop, you don't think about it, right? You use your laptop yeah. to run interviews. You use your laptop to, to, to make calls and to make slides and so on. But you don't think about the chips in your laptop. And for me, yeah. when I realized that, I'm like, there must be more to this. And I started then thinking more about business models um, mm. that were built on top of the technology. So I then started viewing the technology as an enabler or enabling layer. And then what was more exciting or interesting to me were the business models that were built on top of all these technologies that, um, that were emerging at that time. What do you think is the biggest lesson that has sort of brought you um, a lot of not really benefits. I think generally, like, what's the biggest lesson that you got from Intel, but not in the same form as the one earlier? Like maybe in management or in like work ethic or the way you do your work? Yeah. I, I don't know if my Intel colleagues would, would listen <laughs> to this or not. But yeah, the way to do work, I think, was one big lesson for me. So as part of the team, obviously, there was some really cool analysis that we had to do. But at the same time, we had our kind of like, business as usual tasks around churning out reports and making, you know, um, reporting out at the end of every month and so on and so forth. So it used to take some of uh, my team members a week to make such reports. And that's the norm. Like everyone has accepted that. And to me, I'm like, if the steps are always the same, data points that you're pulling are relatively similar. It's always coming from the same sources and the output is always the same. Why can't you automate it? And that's what I did. Right. And so I automated that one week task into three minutes and then I spent the rest of the week basically reading up on, on like, uh, at that point in time, I think it was tech in Asia and other tech publications, tech crunch and so on and so forth. So because I then found myself having so much extra time, uh, where, which my team members did not have. And when I showed it to them, they were like, Oh, this is too complicated. I, I don't know what you're doing there with all the automation and macros and stuff. But I'm like, it's not. You just click a button and it runs, right? Um, you just need to make sure that it's, linking to the right data source and then linking to the right output. And that's all you need to do. So I think that that was one big thing that I learned there where a lot of people have already accepted the status quo in terms of what they were doing. And I'm like, no, we should not do that. And yeah, I think that in itself um, allowed me to really explore what I wanted to do next, which was when I joined uh, Rainmaking in KL. How did you even discover Rainmaking? Um, were you looking at jobs? Did they find you? Or is there a yeah. secret story yeah. that we cannot tell? <laughs> no, no, it's not a secret story at all. I've told this story a couple of times before. So I was, it was one day when it was, it was actually like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Uh, when I was thinking about like life and like, oh, there must be more to this. I wonder what kind of startups are currently hiring. I don't know if they're still around, but there used to be this site called startupjobs.asia or startupjobs.com or something like that. So I was crawling that site uh, and then I saw this job post pop up, which was like, uh, remaking startup bootcamp KL. Uh, and at that point in time, my girlfriend, 
who is now my wife, uh, was in KL as well. So I had a almost like an impetus to be like, okay, uh, like start considering like jobs in KL also. Um, and I applied. So I applied at like 3 a.m. Uh, at 8 a.m. when I was getting ready for work, I got a call and it was someone from uh, uh, Startup Bootcamp Rainmaking who called me and said, hey, I noticed your application. Would you be interested in jumping on a call for an interview? I was like, oh, wow, they move really fast. Like I just put in my application five hours yeah. ago um, and I agreed to the interview. And then, yeah, with one phone call, basically, um, then I was hired into the Malaysian office, which was being set up at that time. Um, so I was one of the first two employees in the Malaysian office at that time. So did they interview you on the spot that day or was it scheduled for another time? It was scheduled actually for a Saturday, which at first I was like, hmm, interesting choice. Uh, it was scheduled for a Saturday um, and I think I applied on a Wednesday or Thursday. So literally the same week. That's interesting. You apply at 3 a.m. and then they call you at 8 a.m., which is like, okay, yeah. when do people go to work? Did the guy just call you as soon as he saw your application when he got to the office? <laughs> I think the thing that struck me the most was they moved really fast and then they kind of left it open in terms of what I was going to do. So in some ways, I could shape my own role or dictate what I was going to do, right? which was quite cool when for the two and a half years before that, I was with Intel where everything is quite straight-laced and these are your roles and responsibilities. You just execute on those. If it's not there, it's another team's job, right? So so to me, this was some of the more refreshing points around how fast they moved as well as some of this like, flexibility that they had. And how did he sort of tell you that the role was a bit more open um, and it was up to you to shape your role? Did he just say those words directly? Yeah, so so I, I asked. So I was like, hey, I don't see many details in this role, like roles and responsibilities column. Like, could you talk to me? Like, what, what does a day in of, what does this person do in a day, right? And what, what, what would be their kind of like KPIs and what they're in charge of and so on. And it's like, he shared a bit of that with me. And then he essentially said, the rest of it is up to you. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, and that's how I then realized that a lot of the role was up to me to see what works best or what, what is most logical, basically. Why do you think it's exciting for people like you to have the ability to shape their own role? I think it goes back to my own like principles and goes back to how I think I enjoy working and, and how I work best as well. So I find that the best environments that I've worked in are when I'm I have flexibility, I have autonomy, and then I'm able to kind of like weigh up different priorities and decisions and seeing what makes more sense. And Rainmaking has essentially given me that environment and that opportunity to do so for a long time, right? So so I, I joined them in 2016, still with them in 2023, although in between I had a hiatus. But yeah, all in all, I've been with the company for I think more than five and a half years now. So yeah, really, really enjoyed and still enjoying the time that, that I have there. And just to add on as well, the flexibility and autonomy that allows me to learn. I think this is the, the other thing that motivates me on a daily basis that makes me want to wake up on a daily basis because i'm constantly learning about new startups new tech new founders new business models and without that level of autonomy or flexibility i don't think i'm able to sustain that level of learning uh, for a long period of time 
Uh, and that keeps me going. So you talked about the hiatus that you had from rainmaking. What sort of made you leave? I don't think there was anything bad, but I think it's interesting to, to hear from somebody who left a company but then came back because I think that's also quite a strong signal, right? Yeah, so I, it is a, a strong, I think, testament to the company's culture that I was really willing and ready to come back. Firstly, I've always kept in touch with some of my teammates during that time that I was away from remaking as well. There were actually three reasons why, why I left. Um, two personal and then one professional. So on the professional side, um, I felt that I was working a lot with founders and startups. And then at points in time, I felt that I couldn't relate. And I realized that why I couldn't relate was because I wasn't deep down in the trenches, hands-on working in a startup. And I realized that, okay, is there a way that I could potentially get some of that? experience so that I can then work with these founders and entrepreneurs uh, much better in the future. So that was the that was the professional reason. The the other two reasons were I was going to get married pretty soon uh, at that point in time. So my wife was still in KL at that time. So I had to move back from Singapore to KL to be with her. And then the other personal reason was, and this is something that I did not realize until maybe one and a half years, two years after, was that I was actually um, exhausted and a bit burnt out, I think. And it was really on me that I did not recognize those signs. I think if I really went on a long break, I would have been back brand new and would have kept going. But I did not realize that myself. Uh, and then I, I basically chose, like made the decision to leave the company when I should have actually taken, I think, a month's break or at least three weeks, I think would have, uh, reset, resetted me. And, and, uh, that in itself made me realize the, the importance of rest and just letting your mind kind of like, uh, relax rather than being full on 100% all the time, every day, every time. What do you think made you realize, like, finally after all this time, um, that the reason that you left was also partially because of the burnout? Like, what? made you guys oh wait um the reason i left was actually this and i never realized um, that yeah so i realized that when i joined the startup that i ended up joining uh, because i felt that i was still going at 100 kilometers per hour and i was still you know executing and and completing tasks as well and that feeling never left me and it took till the pandemic to make me realize like what was really going on. And then I actually started uh, working with a coach, like a mental resilience coach as well. And then she helped me to realize that actually, you know, you're tired. You're not willing to almost like admit to yourself that you're tired as well. And then uh, like you just keep going. It's not a solution. And I was like, oh yeah, like actually that, that makes a lot of sense. And rest is so, so, so important. Uh, and during that time, I think, uh, read a couple of books, listened to a couple of podcasts as well around the topic. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's what I needed. And then looking back with like 2020 hindsight, I then realized, yeah, that was actually the, the state that I was in. And that was why I think I was really open to coming back to the, to the company as well, because there were no hard feelings at all with uh, any team members uh, in the company. And when you came back, um, you became a country manager for Japan. So you moved to Japan. I think that's a big move. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that was a big move. At that point in time, uh, I was actually considering three offers, uh, one of which was Rainmaking Japan. And I was like, should I go back to Rainmaking? But, you know, it's Japan. Like, what a different challenge that yes. would be, right? And I did not speak a word of Japanese at that point in time. So I was like, 
that was also around the time when the hashtag YOLO was trending. So I was like, okay, uh, you know, YOLO, you might never get a chance like this in your career if it passes you as well. So I was like, you know, why not? Just take it, take it on, try it. The worst you, the worst that can happen is you fail and then you look for something else after that. And that's why I decided to do, um, the other two roles that I had were more, I think in my wheelhouse, one was like a head of ops, like an ops role. And then one was more of like a, a analytical role as well. Both of which I've done before. I know I can do well. And I would have stayed in, in Malaysia quite happily as well with my wife at that time. So took on the role and then moved to Japan to start a new life with my wife, basically. So, so that was quite cool, uh, quite interesting with life and personal and professional changes all happening at the same time. What were the difficult parts about adjusting to being a country manager for Japan, uh, apart from the language barrier, or maybe some things that are a bit more detailed within the nuances of having uh, a language barrier? Yeah, uh, l- language aside, cultural barriers are definitely quite high as well. And, and I think the other thing that a lot of us might have forgotten by now, but back in 2021, uh, lockdowns were still happening. So Japan as a country, uh, its borders were closed for a full year after that. So I took on the role thinking that the borders would reopen soon and that I would be able to move soon. But I actually reopened a full year after I, I took on the role, which meant that I was working remotely in KL, hired a whole new team of uh, native speakers uh, and managing remotely and not able to see any of my team members in Japan for one year. So that in itself took a bit of a toll because it was it was really for me I wanted to be there for the team I wanted to be able to support them in person and I felt that I wasn't doing enough as a manager or a country manager of Japan as well but yeah eventually when we moved uh, I'll tell you a couple of stories here one was for example I I, had, I now had my full team I went to play badminton one day in, this was in KL right I went to play badminton one day I think it was at 7pm or something like that I came back one and a half hours later and saw, my, why is my whole team still online on Slack? Like everyone is still green, right? I'm like, there's not that much work to do yet. There's going to be quite a lot of work to do soon, but there's not that much work to do yet. Like what was going on there? And then I realized that I think the practice of uh, waiting for your boss to go home or go offline in this case is still a thing. I then realized that, oh, I think some of my team members were waiting for me to go offline and then they could go offline right i'm like then i immediately was like okay <laughs> i immediately went offline uh, when when i got that feedback from one of my team members and i i just made sure that i was clear with everyone like we work flexibly like we have a flexible working policy so please you know darling when you have to come online when you have to go offline when you have to i'm perfectly fine if you want to go to the gym in the middle of the day, go, right? As long as you don't have meetings, that's fine as well. So it, it took a bit of time, but uh, we then managed to kind of like move the culture a bit more towards uh, what I would call rainmaking culture, essentially. Yeah, that's a good point. Now that I think about it, when I had an internship during the pandemic, I would wait for the other people to go offline. And then even <laughs> if I had nothing that I was doing anymore, I kept my computer open just in case there was somebody else to just see. <laughs> Yeah, just just in case, right? And the just in case almost never happens. Um, yes. um and and, I, and and unless you were told explicitly, you you would be like, I think I should do this, right? And and I think yes. that's the thing that I I was learning a lot of as well when I was I was managing and leading the team that there was some of this cultural 
items that I need to be aware of. And that's why I have uh, quite a strict rule to myself um, to send like Slack messages only during work hours as much as possible, if it's not urgent, right? And Slack has this awesome feature where you can schedule messages and my messages yes. always come in right on, on the dot, but it's because I've thought about it and I don't want to lose my, my train of thought as well because if I don't write it down and I don't share it, uh, I, I might lose it the next day also. So, so yeah, um, just being aware and then understanding each other's working styles there, I think, I think was quite important. What is your actual work as, let's say, a head of brainmaking stand in APAC and as a country manager in Japan? Like, what would your day-to-day life look like? Uh, yeah. Day-to-day work? Yeah. So now I lead the Rainmaking Expand team um, globally. We have teams in Japan, South Korea, uh, Singapore, Australia, UAE, and the UK as well. And we help companies to expand into new markets internationally. So it could be inbound or outbound from Asia Pacific, which is a huge region. And there we help growth stage companies to scale by helping them to secure their first commercial outcomes in the markets that they are trying to land into as well. So we believe that uh, market expansion is not just about hiring a team or uh, setting up a legal entity, getting the right accounting services provider. But in fact, it's securing your first deal if possible. And then once that happens and you have your first client or your first partner on the ground, you can then go through the process of doing all those things that I just mentioned as well. And I think at in this day and age, for your listeners as well, funding has dropped significantly compared to maybe just a few years ago. Um, and therefore, the importance of revenue has increased as well in proportion. So I think it's really, really important to have sustainable expansion. And with that comes generating revenues or creating some form of strategic partnerships with, let's say, system integrators or distributors or resellers as well in the markets that they are trying to enter into so that they don't devote a whole load of time and resources to only find out that that was not the right market to enter into or that was the wrong way to enter the market, which I think is something that a lot of founders have have spoken to me about as well. And in terms of the day-to-day there, then Amanda, is I speak to uh, a lot of founders, actually. I think over the past six, seven months or so, I've spoken to close to 180 founders by now, all thinking of expanding their business or having certain pain points in their business that they might uh, want to get our help on as well. And there, we essentially act as a partner, collaborating with them to successfully enter new markets. And then the other big part of my role then is to kind of like set the strategic direction of where Rainmaking Expand is headed to. Um, So we are already thinking, you know, in six months time, in 12 months time, in 18 and 24 months time, what might that look like uh, beyond just executing on the short-term projects and programs that we currently have. Since you've seen um, so many different startups looking to expand, what are the most common pitfalls that startups have when they try to expand a new market? And are these different depending on like whether you're B2B, B2B2C or B2C or the most common problems the same across the board? There are a few differences, but in general, I would say the most common pitfalls are, are similar. Um, the first one is hiring a team before knowing if there is, there are commercial opportunities on the ground or not. So a lot of the startups that we have seen would hire 
maybe they can call it like a country manager or launcher or business development rep, and then let them figure out how to build that market out or how to, how to be successful in that market for the next six to 12 months. To me, that's a really costly way of expanding. Uh, it's not wrong. It's just costly. And for B2C, I think that works well. When you think back about how maybe Uber launched or how some of these companies launched, they always had market launches that did a lot of the underground activation, user acquisition, partner acquisition, and so on. But when it comes to B2, B2B, I don't think that works as well. So that's one very common pitfall that I've seen. Uh, second pitfall that I've seen is deciding on expanding to a market based on what I would call like headline numbers, like uh, population size or GDP or macro numbers like that. But when you dig a bit deeper, those are actually not that relevant to your specific business or your specific business model or even just the regulations that might completely stop your business from operating there in that market as well, right? So so that's the other thing where I think a lot of people look at headline numbers and like, wow, you know, there are so many people in this market or companies are, are spending this amount or total available market size is X, but then they don't think about how the how it then applies back to their own business and what is actually true or what might not be true. And are there certain assumptions that they're making about that market that they have not successfully validated and they just went all in in that market as well. So that's that's another pitfall that I always see. And I think personally, the third pitfall that I see is a lot of companies actually, they join quite a few accelerator programs or various market entry programs as well in the hopes of being able to successfully land in some of these markets. With some of these programs, there are a lot of mentorship sessions, uh, networking sessions, events that they have to attend to, sometimes even a few demo days that they have to go to as well, but all in the hopes of meeting potential partners and clients. For us, there are much more efficient and effective ways to be able to get to that end outcome without having to do a lot of that. Of course, when it makes sense, then of course, there should be meetings with subject matter experts or even entrepreneurs who have successfully entered the market or entrepreneurs who have failed in terms of entering the market because I think there are key learnings there that these founders that we work with can learn from. But to have a lot of you know mentorship sessions, a lot of uh, networking sessions, and a lot of these founders are really too busy to be able to attend uh, a lot of these sessions as well. I just don't think that that's the right way to enter the market. And this was something that has been shared with me from some of these founders as well as not a pitfall, but a regret that they have. And they say, oh, if we knew that there was a better way to enter the market, we would have done that instead rather than uh, doing this or doing that. So what makes you excited about working on something like, you know, Rainmaking Expanded APAC, helping sort of expand outside of APAC or go into APAC? Is it because you enjoy looking around like different geographies? Is it because you want to build something of your own or is it something of? Yeah, I think uh, beyond my personal motivation of learning about different startups, different founder personalities, different technologies and different business models, there is something quite innate, not just within me, but also uh, in terms of what Rainmaking does, which is to create impact. And impact can come in the form of commercial impact and impact can come in the form of social impact. And these two are often linked as well. So when we help a company enter a new market, we do not take it lightly because a founder has essentially entrusted the responsibility of entering the market successfully 
to us. And it's our job then to partner with them and help them be successful in that market entry as well. And when we take on this responsibility, we really, really want to then create these commercial outcomes and impact for them. Because if their entry is successful, it creates jobs in the home market and the target market that they're trying to enter into for certain solutions. For example, um, there was one company that we helped enter Japan from the UK. And their solution specifically targets disabled rail passengers. So it's like an accessibility solution that you can use on your phone. Um, that in itself has vast social impact because what we realized was 5% of the entire rail pa- uh, pop- passenger population are disabled. And a lot of them are afraid to travel because of certain complications. For example, when you get to a train stop, you need someone, someone in the train station to then put down a ramp for you to then maybe roll your wheelchair safely from the train to the platform and so on and so forth. And all these things then add up and there are actually quite significant cost savings when you use um, that startup's solution. And as passengers, you get a much higher quality of service and, and kind of like peace of mind as well when you then travel. And I think these are exactly the type of companies that we would love to continue help to enter new markets because it creates both a commercial impact for the railway operators. They are able to save costs by providing a higher level of service. And at the same time, we are, we are creating social impact because if more disabled passengers uh, are more willing and open to travel now, that same solution can then be extended to elderly passengers and other types of passengers as well. And again, um, I fully believe that uh, that social impact plus commercial impact link then makes the world a better place. And I think that in itself is why a lot of us at Rainmaking do the work uh, that we do. Why do you care so much about impact? Is it something that um, you found more meaning in when you started working with Rainmaking? Or do you think that's something that you always cared about uh, from the beginning to the same level? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think it's it's really when I started I started working at Remaking and impact is actually one of our core values that I fully realized and understood what that meant and how the actions that we do can create impact as well. So yeah, I would say it's from me working at Remaking and then continuously going through different cycles of what does drive impact and what doesn't drive impact to then keep optimizing on uh, impact creation. I mean, of course, we have made our fair share of mistakes. Of course, we have done things that did not initially create impact as well. And we learned from that and we now know that we should be definitely uh, optimizing a lot more on the impact creation than maybe just doing things for the sake of it or doing things that don't um, generate any impact at all. And what do you look forward to doing? What is your end goal? Is it to become an entrepreneur in the future? Or do you actually just enjoy being part of stories of other startups or part of the operation, even in a part-time form as a part of the Rainmaking Expand team? Yeah, so as Rainmaking, um, we build and we scale ventures and companies. So for me, what I hope to be able to do is to help a lot of the companies that we built and a lot of external startups to successfully scale into new markets, secure new revenue streams and basically grow from there. Hopefully for some of these founders as well, we might be able to help them to exit and that creates a, a better life for them and their families also. So that's what I would, I'm really driving towards and 
growing the Rainmaking Expand business to be able to do that. You mentioned, uh, do I want to be an entrepreneur? I'm kind of already already a co-founder of a, a separate company at the same time as well. And it's part of, you know, another thesis that I have, which is remote work is going to increase in the future. And then I think a lot of professional, white-collar knowledge workers would want to work from anywhere rather than just work from the city that they are in. Uh, and therefore, um, yeah, my wife and I started this company that is looking at accommodation that is specific to uh, remote workers and digital nomads as well. I'm providing a bit of like strategic advice and direction on the side while she's driving a lot of that forward. But yeah, um, I see that as all of that as part of my role. So I don't see that as I want to become an entrepreneur uh, in the future because um, I'm already applying, I think, a lot of not just the entrepreneurial mindset, but also um, in terms of helping to drive uh, impact in terms of my work currently already. What's the most exciting story that you have from your current role, maybe from a corporate partnership or from helping a startup scale? Like what story do you think is the most fulfilling from your career? Yeah, so I think there are a few. One was the one that I just spoke about, about helping this UK company enter Japan. We are still working with them right now. So by helping them enter Japan, uh, we did two POCs with around a hundred real users. We're able to display the results very clearly that their, their solution is superior to anything else in the market right now. Through that, we then helped them to secure a strategic fundraise round from one of the CDCs of, of the railways that, that they worked with. And then from that, they were able to secure a long-term contract and they are also currently hiring a team and incorporating a business uh, in Japan, which is well, notoriously one of the world's hardest markets to break into as well, right? And not just that, they were then recognized at the G7 summit uh, a few months ago in Hiroshima uh, by the prime ministers of the UK and Japan that they are basically bridging the UK-Japan kind of like route and helping to collaborate between the two countries. So that's one really, to me, uh, close to my heart examples of how we were able to create impact, not just commercially and socially, but also show that these kind of partnerships and collaborations are possible between, you know, a large corporate and a startup as well. The other example I have is uh, we worked with this uh, Canadian company and we helped them to enter both Singapore and, and Japan as well. And they just got acquired uh, earlier this year in March. Um, and to me, a lot of the work that we do in terms of helping companies enter these markets um, essentially help them to build up a track record as well of which markets they were in. And if that makes it more attractive to a potential acquirer in the future, then that again, is a positive impact to everyone working in that company as well. So yeah, I would say these two examples are the closest uh, to my heart. So stepping outside of work, what do you like to do for fun? I think you mentioned, was it tennis or badminton? Or do you, was that a one-time thing? So I do, <laughs> it's just not a one-time thing. Um, but I do play tennis. I do play badminton. I really love playing futsal. Um, so football, futsal is the other one that I do. I do a lot of hiking as well now that I'm in Japan uh, with my wife. Uh, there's so many uh, mountains with nice sceneries to go uh, to also. Uh, and besides that, I do play computer games as well. So uh, football manager is my thing. Football is my thing and football manager is my thing. So so yeah, um, I spend, when I can find the time, I spend a bit too much time on it. 
So yeah, that's, that's, that's some of what I do uh, in my free time. And of course, I still read, uh, just not as much as when I was young. What do you like to read? Like outside of, maybe actually you have fun reading the work-related books, but what are the kind of books that you like to read the most? Yeah, nowadays, um, I have been quite into like biographies and also um, I try to balance it out. If I read one biography, I, I try to then read like a science, science fiction novel. Uh, so that I don't just keep reading nonfiction and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I've been reading quite a lot of biographies um, of you know, different CEOs. Like, for example, Shoe Dog was a great one. Uh, and I, I've been reading quite a lot of those kind of books. But at the same time, I try to then balance that out with a bunch of other sci-fi novels that are somehow still relevant to my work because they talk about AI, they talk about climate change, they talk about clean tech and a lot of this stuff as well. So yeah, I would say I try to balance it out in that way. Do you like to read the biographies of entrepreneurs or do you also like to read uh, biographies of people who are not entrepreneurs? Yeah, uh, mainly mainly entrepreneurs. Yes, yes. Because I, I remember hearing about there being a biography about a US president that's like extremely long and extremely detailed. Not sure if that's your thing. <laughs> yeah, so if it's like, like let's say Michelle Obama's you know book and so on, then then I think yes, that's interesting, mm-hmm. but not all the time, not all the time. So I'm not that into politics to be honest with you. So when it's let's say Barack and Michelle Obama, or I think I think you mentioned uh, people who I admire, then yes, I, I'm more okay. partial to that. I also listen to this podcast called Founders by David Senra, where he reviews the biographies and the key learnings there so that I don't have to read it as oh, well. Okay. Uh, so so that's quite that's, that's quite good also um uh, from my opinion. Now I'm gonna check that out. Because sometimes I feel like there are some biographies that kind of sound very similar to other ones. So I don't know which ones to read and which ones not to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are some that I'm like I'm not I'm slightly interested in, but I wouldn't put down, you know, However many, however many hours I need to read that book. So when I see it on, let's say, David, David Senra's podcast, I'm like, oh, cool. Then I just listen to it. He gives his take. He basically sub- summarizes the whole thing. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's as good as, uh, like reading the book, I, I guess, from my point of view. So now that you're based in Japan, I think what's interesting is also you're not based in Tokyo or maybe most people would expect or at least what I expected. Mm. So could you give us some recommendations on what you kind of enjoy about Osaka yeah absolutely places to see uh, in Osaka is great Uh, so if anyone is coming to Osaka uh, drop me a DM on LinkedIn or something like that I have a map pinned of all the places that you should be going to uh, that I think a lot of locals go to so one thing that people don't realize about Japan is when you let's say Google put in the words sushi into Google Maps it shows you whichever that has the English word sushi, right? Yeah. But when you translate that into Japanese and you put it into Google Maps, a whole new list of places pop up where you normally would not think to go to. Quite a lot of these places are quite small and some may or may not serve you, but um, it just gives you a whole different experience when you do go there. The quality of the food and the freshness of the food is way higher than I would say anything that you would have experienced uh, in Southeast Asia, but the prices are way lower as well. And that's oh, the other okay. thing, right? Which which is it is dis- disproportionate, which is really, really 
interesting and it allows you to live more like a uh, travel or live more like a local as well. But yeah, I have a whole bunch of themed places. So food is definitely one key thing about Osaka. The other thing about Osaka is it's really strategic because it's like an hour away from Kyoto, Kobe, Nara, all the greatest hits uh, of the region as well. And people can always use Osaka as the base to then travel to some of these areas as well, which are all beautiful and have their own unique value proposition in itself also. So yeah, I would say food, the type of places that you can access from Osaka, really, really great. And actually the people in Osaka are way friendlier, to be honest with you. Um, they are super friendly uh, compared to maybe some other experiences that I've had. Uh, but yeah, highly recommend Osaka uh, as a place to live in, as a place to travel, of course, and more than happy to, to go out for uh, some sushi or some drinks if anyone wants wants to come along. When you go to <clears throat> when you go to Japan and you're looking at a restaurant, assuming that you don't have Google search or anything at that point, how do you evaluate whether the restaurant is good? Is it by the amount of old people eating? Is it about the <laughs> amount of uh, locals eating? Like, or is there no signal? Yeah, yeah. Um, so one not so good way of evaluating that is actually the queues. So uh, the length of the queue, for example, in some restaurants in Tokyo can be up to two to three hours. Uh, whereas in Osaka, it, it tends to be, be, be shorter, but that in itself is not enough. I would say the n- number of locals, um, lining up and also in the, in the restaurant itself. The other thing that I use to gauge if it's fully local or not is if their menus have an English translation. So if they don't, and sometimes it's handwritten and Google Translate doesn't work as well when it's handwritten uh, manuals also, that's when it gets really challenging. But then, you know, that's that's half the fun of it as well. So at this point in time, I can read uh, a bit already. So I do I do know what I'm ordering. Uh, but at the same time, um, yeah, I think it's, it's just part of immersing yourself or living like a local um, and seeing if other, you know, uh, locals are eating at the same spot or not. What is your favorite Japanese food to eat out and maybe one that you would cook yourself? Oh, um, I think to eat out, it would be yakitori. Um, so like chicken skewers. Um, I got into this weird phase maybe uh, six months ago where I started analyzing like the type of wood used for the skewers, the, th- the parts of the chicken, um, what charcoal they use to, to kind of like uh, barbecue the, the, the chicken on, uh, to, to grill the chicken on, uh, and then also what sauce they put onto it. So for example, for some shops, they have sauces that they have not changed in 40 years. They just keep adding to it. And it's like part of their secret recipe in some way. So, so yakitori is one that I think is, it looks simple. It looks like a satay or a skewer, but there's so much skill and craft that goes into it that I'm really amazed by. So I, I would eat that. Outside, I would not make that at home. Um, the ones that I would make at home would probably be something more like a ramen or, or an udon, where it's uh, much easier, but at the same time, it's it's just comfort food, you know. So yeah. Has your perspective on like Japanese food changed since you went to Japan? Like, oh, do you yes. think the tastes are super different? Yes, it has changed uh, to the point where now, if I do go back to Singapore, or Malaysia, I can't eat Japanese food anymore um, because I'm just like. The quality is just levels below and the price that you pay is uh, exorbitant for that level of quality. So so it has actually changed 
how I consume Japanese food as well. So I only consume Japanese food in Japan now. I don't eat that at all in, in Singapore or Malaysia when I'm there. Um, but besides that, yes, I think it has also changed um, in terms of the different uh, variations that you can have. So everyone thinks of, let's say, uh, ramen and udon and soba is just you know different types of noodles and so on but actually there are so many other things that go into it in terms of what flour was used to make the noodles uh, what sauces or broth goes along with it what are the kind of like toppings and condiments and and once you start kind of like taking into account all the different variations there's so many different things that can come out from there and I, I found that really really interesting personally because i never knew that before i moved to japan and I think moving to a country absorbs some of the culture um, for yourself, either on purpose or unknowingly. Is there anything from Japanese culture, Japanese working style that you think you've actually put into practice, either in your work or your personal life? Yeah. One thing that I really, really like uh, about the Japanese working culture is they all go to work really early in some ways. And, and they, in some ways, it has somewhat a motivational kind of like Thing there I know I can't really describe it but but when for example when I'm walking to work I see so many other people you know walking to work or taking the train to work and so on like it's a I, I feel that there's a very different feeling in terms of the work ethic and the drive and the motivation to work as compared to maybe some of the countries that I've been in as well so weirdly enough I feel like that resonates with me more or aligns with how I work more as well. So I really like that. But at the same time, I think there are some uh, items in Japanese working culture that can and should change. For example, treatment of women in the workplace. So in, in rainmaking, I would say we are around half-half in terms of 50% males, 50% uh, females, but that's not often the case in Japanese companies and Japanese corporates. And I would say the treatment of women in the workplace is sometimes does not leave me with a good feeling. What I mean by that is, for example, sometimes uh, if I have a female colleague, for example, and she speaks fluent native Japanese, uh, whereas I don't, she might still be expected to buy by whoever that we might be meeting to go and get the tea and serve it. Uh, whereas I'm expected to host the, the people that we are meeting and talk to them. Whereas in my mind, the roles should be reversed. Like I should go get the tea and then my colleague can, can talk to the clients because, or, or partners because, um, that's the best use of both roles there in, in some ways. But I think for, for some parts of Japanese working society, both gender as well as seniority still plays a very, very big role, which I feel in this day and age, can be a bit more equalized, basically. How about in your personal life? Is there anything about Japanese culture that you've maybe implemented? That I've I implemented? Wow. Uh, not oh. sure about implemented, but like, let's say, something that you've adapted without knowing, maybe? Adapted without thinking of, hmm, I need to, I need to, uh, there are definitely things that I would appreciate a lot more about Japan when I do travel. The safety, the cleanliness, there are a few things that just being in Japan for a year has even made me kind of like take some of that for granted. When Then when I travel to certain countries, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, <laughs> I think I should be a bit more on guard here about certain things or 
oh, the streets are not as clean as it, it is in Japan and so on and so forth. So, so there are certain things that I definitely have um, maybe taken for granted a bit. But no, I think, uh, or may, uh, maybe in terms of diets as well, um, my wife and I eat clean more often than not these days. Oh, so that's one thing. Uh, that's, that's definitely one thing because the Japanese diet and the food in Japan is relatively light and healthy, right? Even if you talk about fried foods, uh, let's not talk about alcohol, but if, even if you talk about fried foods and so on, um, the oil that they fry it in and the feeling that you get after eating it is quite different compared oh, to... Really? Yeah, it's quite different compared to, I don't know, maybe even, uh, in, in, in Philippines where you have, uh, you know, uh, roasted and fried food as well. It's a very different feeling because you don't feel bloated or you don't feel like, you're like, oh, you just had a really huge meal, but you are, you're kind of like in a nice place. Um, so I think ramen? Is it like yeah. heavy or no, not no, as heavy? No, still not. Yeah. I think it depends where you go, but, but still mm. not, I think. Yeah. Oh. Okay, and then like after being in Japan so long, does it ever get, I don't know, does it ever feel tiring or like you get bored of it? Or do you think it's the kind of place that if you move there for work, there's always something um, exciting about it? Yeah, yeah, I think there's still some, there's always something exciting about it. But then again, I've only been here for a year plus, right? Mm. Uh, maybe if you ask me that again in five years time or 10 years time, I might give you a very different answer. But for now, I'm still enjoying every moment of it. And, and I do travel to uh, Singapore where our headquarters are as well uh, as I need to also. So yeah, I think, I think definitely still enjoying it. Okay. Let's check back in and then at least five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll send you a calendar invite for that. And I think here I'll ask you one question that we ask everybody on the podcast. And for this question, um, there's no specific timeline. It could be achieved in one week, two years, ten years, thirty years, or no timeline at all. And the question is, outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? My timeline there would be hopefully to the end of my life, but there will be two things that I want to achieve. Oh, so you mentioned outside of work. Yes. Okay, then that's, so strictly, that's one thing. No rainmaking. Strictly <laughs> outside of work. Okay, fine. Take your time. <laughs> I think it would be to have a happy and healthy relationship with all my loved ones and my friends. Because I think you mentioned strictly outside of work, but work does impact or affect a lot of that. At, uh, at times right uh, and it's very easy to lose sight of what's really really important in life uh, and the priorities in life as well so for me I would say definitely to have a happy and healthy relationship with my friends my loved ones my wife of course and yeah I think I think that in itself is super important to me so I just had my wedding recently uh, less than a month ago uh, and oh. I actually had the chance to yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually had a chance to see a lot of my friends and, and loved ones uh, recently as well. And that was a really, really, really good feeling. Uh, and yeah, I think definitely is to have that. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for you know all the honesty and for sharing a bit more about your life in a way that you know, I'm pretty sure none of us listening know, except maybe your wife and your immediate family and friends. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. thank you. And Thanks, yeah, Amanda. Really Thanks for, for listening again. Thank you. Take care.